not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. Hello and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, and I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. For nine years now, I've been telling my story there, and I hold space for your stories here. Now, the woman you'll meet today has done a lot of work understanding how her early experiences in her family of origin might have set her up for the addiction that was to unfold as she grew older. And she has done everything she can to break the mold and change her life going forward. Meet Audrey. This is her story. Hello there, Audrey. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. It's nice to chat with you. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. It's nice to chat with you, too. Now, I know you have a super busy household, and so for you to carve out this time to literally hide away <laughs> and chat yeah. with me, it means a lot. Closet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for making the effort to do this. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. Um, the Bubble Hour was the first recovery podcast I listened to, and I listened to it for a while before... I took the plunge, so I'm so happy to give back a little. Oh, that's so nice. And you and I have been emailing for a few years <laughs> or messaging back and that's forth right. for a few years. And then we did get to meet in person, which was really neat. That was that was really neat. Mm-hmm. And I've wanted to interview you ever since. So I'm really glad (laughs) this is the upside of the situation that we're in, of all this stillness and restriction right now, is that it at least creates some space for us to talk. So (laughs) that's true. It's like very, very busy, but also nothing to do. So (laughs) yeah. All right. Weird combination we're in right now. Let's. We'll hear a little bit more about what life is like for you as you share your story. So let's get into that. Let's have you tell okay. us all about you and tell us your story. Okay. Well, um, I am 40 years old. I have been uh, sober from drugs and alcohol since I was 36. I think my sobriety date is December 28, 2015. I was a high-functioning, high-bottom binge drinker, party girl, Um, ever since I, I think I had my first drink of alcohol when I was about 14, and it was off to the races right away. I come from a pretty dysfunctional family system, and there's generational trauma on both sides of my family. I've been in therapy since I was in high school, and... um, on and off. I went in college and I, I still go now. And both of my parents probably have some form of a personality disorder and they both have pretty disordered relationships with all the people in their lives separately. They're divorced. My mom grew up with an alcoholic father. He 
was a, also a binge drinker, but he was the kind of binge drinker where he would go off on like a two or three month binge and he would be gone from her house and then he would come home and sober up pretty good for a, a while and then he would fall off the wagon again. And he, from what I know, his father was like that and his father's father was like that. And so it's like a long line of sort of the town drunk. My mom, she has three sisters, so it was all girls. And when she was in high school, he um, came at her and she went, she like picked up a chair and he sort of never came at her again. When my, when my mom was in high school, when in the 60s, she got pregnant. And this is sort of her big trauma, which fell out on me and my sisters. And I think that when she's in the right frame of mind, she... She knows this. She can, she can be self-aware about this. But um, so she was pregnant. Her mom made her go to one of those sort of like pregnant girl camps that they used to run, and they changed her name. They wouldn't. Um, nobody visited her, or I think she was visited by twice by like aunts and uncles, but no one in her family. She missed her sister's wedding. Um, she didn't want to give up the baby, but was talked into it. She gave birth by herself in a room with only a doctor coming in and out. And I think she only held the baby for a little bit. And then they took the baby and adopted the baby out. The baby was a girl. And then they sent her home and everybody acted like it never happened. Nobody talked to her about it or counseled her. And then she had another, she ended up getting married a few years later and she had another girl, my older sister, and she was married to the father, but they um, broke up. And then she met my dad. And my dad comes from a pretty dysfunctional family, too. And his father was abandoned by his father. Um, there was some trauma on both sides of his family. And then there recently came to light, there was a sexual abuse trauma in that family that was covered up and um, not talked about. So that was my father's history. Then they had me and my younger sister. When I was born, the story is that my dad's mother sort of took over for the first few weeks. And my mom will say that her and I didn't bond. I was put in full-time daycare at about six weeks old. And what is said to me is that I cried a lot as a baby, just nonstop crying. My mom, I don't think she bonded well with any of us as babies because of the trauma that she went through. I have a very anxious, avoidant attachment with her, and I've explored that through therapy. My mom's sort of a louder, more extroverted person, and I'm a very, from childhood, I've been very um, shy, quiet, anxious, sensitive, introverted, um, and I think I'm an empath, and I I feel things very deeply and I'm sensitive to light. I'm sensitive to loud noises. And it was just sort of a mismatch temperamentally. My childhood, I don't really remember much before the age of 10. Um, I have some memories, but um, my therapist has said that I probably dissociated a lot because there was a fair amount of yelling and rage in my house. And um, I think that I reacted more to that than my sisters did, maybe. 
And um, when I was about 10, my parents divorced. My dad began a relationship with a woman from his divorce support group within six months of the divorce. The baby that my mom gave up for adoption, she found my mom. It was like five years before the divorce, and they had, were like building a relationship. She died in a car accident about six months after my parents divorced. My mom was devastated, of course, and she went into a pretty severe depression. And me and my younger sister, who's two years younger than me, um, we were shuffled back and forth between my mom and dad. And my dad became more and more involved with my stepmom. And then when I was about 14, my mom broke, uh, woke us up before school one morning and said that my dad had disappeared. We didn't know where he was. He had moved from his house. He didn't leave a forwarding address. He didn't tell his parents where he moved or his sisters. And um, I didn't see him again until I was 21. So he basically abandoned the family. Now, he did keep paying my mom some child support, although although was sort of contentious court battles over that. I had my first alcohol before a soccer practice at about 14. Me and my friends found my dad's old liquor cabinet hidden behind some stuff in the cupboard. My mom went back to school, so she was in college, and she became a student teacher, and she got heavily involved in a church, and so she was pretty absent um, when I was in high school. And she definitely kept a roof over our heads, and she kept us fed and clothed, but she, she wasn't around a lot. And so we found this alcohol, we drank it. My friend's parents drank a lot of Kahlua, and so she was like, let's mix this brandy with milk. And we drank that. We didn't drink that much, and then we went and played soccer and whatever. I think the next weekend, we were at a friend's house, and we were drinking these giant gin and lemonades, and I got sick as a dog. But I did have that aha feeling, like... I feel better. Alcohol just filled that hole in me. I also smoked a lot of marijuana in high school. I was a straight-A student. I was editor of my high school newspaper. I was also arrested twice in high school. So I had a pretty mixed bag. My mom would say that I was good at keeping the balls in the air. I was always very high-functioning. College was my ticket out. There was a lot of rage in my house when I was in high school, a lot of yelling and screaming directed at me. I, I desperately wanted out of my house. And I got to college, and I was once again sort of off to the races at college. And I never really got addicted to one thing in particular. It was just anything that anybody put in front of me, I would put in my body. So I've done pretty much every drug there is. And... Um, drinking all the time and very unsafe situations doing really pretty well in school. And I always had two or three jobs. I think at one point in college, I had five jobs because I had to pay my way through too. I majored in human development because that's what I had the most units in. And I really enjoyed small children. I did some internships with some of my classes and preschools. And I really, really liked that. I graduated in 2001 I got a job as a preschool teacher in my hometown. So while I was in college, 
my cousin on my dad's side, one of my cousins that I grew up with, overdosed on ketamine, which is also known as Special K. And she was in high school at the time, and she almost died. And she still has a, a TBI. She has a traumatic brain injury. Um, but at the time, they thought she was going to die. And so I contacted my dad to let him know because it was his sister's kid. And we reconnected. We went to lunch, and then we sort of started trying to rebuild a relationship. Right before he sort of disappeared on us in high school, he had a daughter when I was about 15. So I have a sister who's about 15 years younger than me. And he was living with her and my stepmom. So I reached out to him. We started rebuilding. Also, while I was in college, my mom met somebody who she later married, who was, she would call him macho, and I'm going to put that in air quotes, but really he's an emotionally damaged, narcissistic bully. And my mom basically lost all of her relationships because of, because she stands by his behavior no matter what. She really protects him. Like if he behaves badly and we have a negative reaction to that, it's our fault because we don't accept him. And that's been happening for the last 20 years. Um, she lost relationships with her own sisters. She lost lifetime friendships because of this man's behavior. Me and my sisters had ongoing problems with him because he really steps over people's boundaries and he does it on purpose to establish dominance. At the time, I had very weak boundaries, but I knew they were being squashed. It didn't feel good. And we would react to him. And she, at one point after she met him, wrote us, me and my sisters, a letter, like a snail mail letter. It was the same letter to each of us. And it basically said that... She had done what she could to mother us, and we were grown women now, and we didn't need her anymore, so she was done being our mother. And then I didn't see or speak to my mother for, like, three years. And at that time, I had sort of a tenuous relationship with my dad, but I was basically doubly orphaned, um, me and my sisters. That was very painful. That has happened in, in different iterations over the last 20 years. Anyone who's in, like, a cycle of abuse knows, like, the incident, which I would call that letter an incident. And then after a while, the person comes back and apologizes to you and you forgive them and you try again. And then they start to build up resentment again about something. And then there's sort of a blowout again. And we've just been in that cycle. A good example of this behavior that this man has done is he once called my seven-year-old nephew loudly in front of all of us a jackass. And when we reacted negatively to that, my mom was basically on his side eventually. She, in the moment, was like, no, he can't do that. But then it always comes around to we're being too hard on him, we're too sensitive, that kind of stuff. So I was a preschool teacher, and then I went and I got my credential, and I became a kindergarten teacher, which I loved. Um, up and down with alcohol and drugs all through my 20s. Uh, the drugs sort of fell by the wayside, and mostly it became alcohol. My age group just drink a ton. Like certain groups of people, it's just like, that's all we do. We just, and it went from like beer in college to wine and wine tastings and going to vineyards and that kind of stuff. I always drank to blackout. I always went for it. I was never just having like a glass or two. It was always like, I'm going to drink until I can't drink anymore. Um, and uh, I was in lots of dangerous situations. I mean, I've been so lucky that I didn't get a DUI or hurt somebody. 
walked home from bars all by myself in the downtown city, one night stand, and I was often sick for days after horrible hangovers. Um, I would vomit a lot. Then I would be like drained for two or three days. I met my husband when I was 28 in the early days of eHarmony, <laughs> which is a online dating site. After being sort of goading into joining the site by some friends, I've been so lucky to find this love relationship, really this best friendship with my husband. He's a normie. And now he barely drinks at all since I'm sober. I mean, we don't even really have alcohol in the house. He's been so supportive and he's so supportive of me with my family stuff. We got married in 2011. We drank and partied together, but I always partied way harder. Sometimes we'd have that when to leave the party fight, which I'm sure every person who's a drinker and has married to a normie knows he would like want to leave and I'd be, I didn't want to stop drinking. Now I wouldn't have told you that consciously, but that's like my subconscious wanted to keep drinking. I would often end the evenings crying. So I'm a crying drunk and uh, I would be crying. We would get in a fight on the way home and I kind of wouldn't remember it in the morning, but it, you know, sure it really grated on him. And my hangovers just got worse and worse. I would have like two, three day hangover still um, horrible sleep. If I had been drinking, couldn't, you know, where like you turn off, but then you wake up in the morning. It's like you haven't had any restorative sleep. I sort of dabbled in sobriety all my whole life. In college, I was sober for a year, my sophomore year of college, because my freshman year of college, I overdosed on drugs once and then go to the hospital and so much. I blacked out. I would wake up in a house. I didn't know anybody. So I was sober my sophomore year of college. But then, of course, I went back to drinking and um, I would do like 30 days here, like cleanses, like 90 days here. After I got married, um, we had my my first child uh, in 2013. I did not drink during the pregnancy, except I did have half a glass of champagne when we bought our new house and moved in. And then I had like half a glass of wine at my baby shower. But both times, it didn't taste very good. I don't really want half a glass of wine. <laughs> I want like the whole bottle. Uh, while I was pregnant, I worried a lot that I wouldn't be able to bond with her because I had such a difficult bond with my own mother. And I actually, when I found out she was a girl, I was scared because I had sort of hoped for a boy because I felt like, I don't know, I just was worried that my my difficult relationship with my mother would would repeat itself. I was very, very lucky because I bonded with my daughter right when she came out. Actually, my stepmom said this to me once. She said that when she had my youngest sister, that when she came out and she saw her face, it was like, there you are. Like she'd always known her. And that's exactly how I felt when I had my daughter. I have bonded so well with both of my children. So I've been, I feel very lucky because I feel like part of that is just hormonal and that I wasn't traumatized the way my mom was. I had my daughter. And I started drinking again afterwards. I sort of debated whether or not to tell this story, but I'm going to tell it. So I really struggled to breastfeed both my children. Neither of them latched very well. But with her, we were able to sort of muddle through until she was about seven months. But I also pumped because she wasn't latching well. And then both my kids had some formula too. I breastfed her totally wasted at least twice. At a wedding once and at a party another time because she was inconsolable and she needed to be 
consoled. And so I did that. And then I would pump breast milk and sometimes, and because I didn't produce very much, it was like gold. And I really wanted to keep it, even if it, if I had been drinking. And so I would label the breast milk bottles with an A if I had been drinking. And I would like titrate it. I would like combine it with breast milk that I hadn't been drinking. With just, I would put like a little bit of the A bottle in. And all is like, uh, it's like so embarrassing and shameful to say. And I'm going to have a huge vulnerability hangover. But and I have a lot of guilt and shame about that. So... And of course, I didn't feel good about it at the time. Things were okay. I heard it described once on the home podcast. I didn't spectacularly burn out the way some people do. I didn't have a low bottom. I heard someone say she said it was like a long, slow slump to the bottom. And that's how I felt. I just got so psychically sick. My soul got so sick from alcohol. And um, the last time I drank, my daughter was about two and a half. We were in my hometown. I grew up in San Diego. And we were in San Diego, me and my husband and my daughter. And we were visiting some high school friends of mine. And all of my high school friends were there and their husbands and their kids, me and a couple of the girls. And it was white wine, I remember. Towards the end of the night, my husband wants to go home. He walked to the hotel with our daughter. And one of my girlfriends, the one whose house we were at, really wanted me to stay. And she was like a major drinking buddy of mine. And incidentally, she's been so supportive of my sobriety. So she's, she's amazing. But she really wanted me to stay. And this was one of my first incidents where I started, where I heard the little voice that was like, you should go back to the hotel with your husband. You, that's actually probably what I wanted to do deep down. But I couldn't say no because I didn't want to hurt her feelings, even though she would have been fine if I had said no. It was all, that's all my stuff. But I stayed. I took a hit of her husband's pot, which was never a good idea. I slept on her couch, but I almost like didn't sleep all night because I had had so much to drink and I was so ill. And I did her bathroom at like three or four in the morning. And I remember in that bathroom, I can remember the moment I had that, like, um, I think you've called it the gift of desperation. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I literally thought no one's going to like me. I'm never going to have fun again. People are going to hate me and I'm never, I'm going to change. I'm going to upend our whole lives, but I can never feel like this again. I can never feel like this again. I was like, never, it's never going to (laughs) happen. I felt so sick. Not just physically. I felt sick in my soul. And my, my friend got up. I got up. She, I dry heaved all morning. She drove me back to the hotel. I, I think I puked in a cup in her car. It was so gross. And I got into the hotel room. <clears throat> of course, my husband and my beautiful daughter, they're like up and getting ready. And my husband can tell just by looking at me. And he was so sweet to me through this whole thing. He was never mean to me or mad at me. You know, they were up and getting ready for the day. And I just had to lay down. We were visiting my sister and my nephews. We went to their house. I was like, I had to lay on the couch all day there. I had to lay on the couch the next day. And I basically wasted our whole trip being hungover. I said, I said to my husband, I'm done. And he heard it before that I was like, I'm, no, I'm really done. And 
um, if you remember, my sobriety date is December 28th. So three nights later, four, we were at a New Year's Eve party. And I just was like, no, <laughs> I'm not drinking. I don't want to. I, li- I really have never really looked back because I made myself so sick that I, I like turned a corner and I never, I don't want to drink. Three weeks after that night, I found out I was pregnant with my second child. And so I was like, well, there we go. There's my excuse. And I didn't drink for the nine months. And I didn't tell people I was quitting drinking. I just was pregnant. And nobody pressures you to drink when you're pregnant. I've been sober ever since then. I um, have done a lot of emotional sobriety work since then with my family stuff. I'm no contact with three out of four of my nuclear family members. My, the ones I grew up in the house with, I'm no contact with. And some of those are because they decided they didn't want to have contact with me. And some of them are because I've had to stop having contact with them because they can't respect my boundaries. They can't even hear my boundaries. I started listening to the bubble hour when my, I, I feel like I started listening to the bubble hour when my daughter was like one. So I remember you talking about, is it the stages of change? Mm-hmm. Yep. I was in that, is it contemplating? Yes. I yeah. contemplated for a long time. If people are listening to recovery podcasts and then still drinking, I did that for a long time. And I read books. I've read a ton of recovery books. I think I read Drinking a Love Story. Is that what it's called? By Carolyn mm-hmm. Knapp? Carolyn Knapp. Mm-hmm. I think I read that before I had my daughter because I'm thinking about the house. I was reading it in the backyard and that was before I was pregnant. So I had been with what's it called sober curious <laughs> for a long time before I hit that, that day. What's been really important for me to realize after, so after I got sober, we, uh, we lost some friendships, which my normie husband was shocked that people behaved the way they behaved towards me when I stopped drinking because if you're listening to this and you are wondering if people are triggered because you don't drink, the answer is yes. Because we lost people. People could not handle it. You and I are friends on social media. I'm not someone who puts my sobriety out there a ton. And I think it's great when people do that. I just personally don't. And still, people are triggered by it. Having to learn how to set boundaries and how to take care of myself instead of taking care of other people's feelings all the time has been my big like post sobriety challenge. And it's something I'm still working on. I do therapy. Um, Right now I see my therapist once a month. We're still zooming or I do. um, I'm an introvert. So I did not do AA. I think AA saves people's lives. If you, if, if AA works for you, that's great. But it didn't, it was not something that appealed to me because I, I'm a teacher, I'm an introvert, and now I have children and I still see some of my girlfriends and my life is so full of activity. I also volunteer at a horse therapy program and, and that's for me because I grew up loving horses as a little girl and that's something I do for me. And so like, that's my recovery. I don't need to go sit in a room and talk about it because I'm done drinking. It's not knocking on my back door. Someone else who I really, really responded to her work is Annie Grace, because that's how I feel. Because she always says, like, she drinks as much as she wants to drink, which is not at all. 
And that's sort of how I feel. It just doesn't appeal to me anymore. And uh, actually, if I think about drinking alcohol, it makes me feel sick to my stomach. I somehow managed to like brainwash myself <laughs> into that feeling, which is great because I don't, it's not something I think about. Um, the abuse situation I grew up in, the emotional verbal abuse has been, um, it's ongoing. It's still ongoing. And there's a ton of gaslighting about it. So it's like, you're too sensitive. You are holding a grudge. Um, almost the gaslighting about the emotional abuse that's like the hardest to deal with. Part of, I think sometimes part of the reason people feel the need to escape their lives is because they're letting people treat them in a way that doesn't feel good deep down. I grew up to be a people pleaser because that's how, when you have a raging, possibly borderline narcissistic parent, you learn to be quiet because that's how you stay safe. And it's, it's ground in there deep into my blueprint. It's be quiet. Don't, don't rock the boat. Because when you're a small child, it's actually how you keep your physical safety. And I still go there if I have conflict. My husband has been great with that because he is able to, he has taught me how to have conflict because I didn't know how to have conflict. I, I only knew how to hide from conflict. He doesn't yell and scream the way my family does. I uh, have really learned to stick up for myself a little more and to say, like, I don't like that. And that's okay for me to say that now. My family has not responded well to that. I think sometimes we hear these or read these things about setting boundaries, and it's, it talks about how you need to set boundaries, but sometimes they, they don't talk about how poorly that's going to be received. And you're going to feel like you're doing it wrong. But the truth is, I don't know if you were in the room at the L.A. She Recovers, but there was a woman who said this line, and I, I can't remember her name, but she said, please remember that when you decide to stop people-pleasing, people will not be pleased. And that has stuck with me, and that has been my experience, that people are not pleased. I had um, my younger sister. We had sort of a best friendship growing up. We had um, It's called a Hansel and Gretel relationship when you grow up in an abuse situation and you bond. We trauma bonded, and we were enmeshed in the last couple of years she was having some problems and I overfunction is what my therapist calls it. I am a family peacemaker. And so I'm constantly, I used to constantly try and make everything okay for everybody else all the time, like calling people really over performing, over functioning is what she calls it. We all were very worried about this particular sister. And we decided that I would try and intervene to help her. And she did not take that well, and she has her right to feel that way. But she bit me over the phone, and I've never had things screamed at me the way this happened. And she actually screamed at me, everybody hates you and all your sobriety cuss word. And I said, what? Because that's not even what we were talking about. And she was like, oh, come off it. So that's how bad people can in very dysfunctional families can be triggered by one person trying to get healthy because you don't fit anymore. Families are like a puzzle. And if you change your puzzle piece, you don't fit anymore. And if they don't, don't change with you a little bit, it can be really hard to force yourself back into that, that place that you occupied. 
in the family system. That is the thing that I would recommend to people who get who get sober if they come from dysfunction is to work on emotional sobriety. And that can be, it doesn't have to be with your family. It can be with love relationships or with friendships or work relationships is that you start to learn to set boundaries. And I know we hear that word a lot, boundaries, but actually doing the work has been, has been the hardest part of sobriety for me, but also the most, the most effective, the most transformative, I think, for my life is learning to, to take care of the little Audrey that's inside of me because she needed to be protected when I was little and she still, I still need to be protected. It's important that I take care of myself. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to learn now. If you've seen the movie, the matrix, Uh getting sober for me felt has felt like taking the red pill. Like I woke up to the world. I woke up to, uh, something else I've done since getting sober is I've stopped dieting and I've stopped um, hating my body. Now, do I love the way my body looks? No, but I'm not doing the body hating that I used to do. Um, I also, I had eating disorders all through like interwoven with the alcoholism and the <laughs> drug use is that I was on and off anorexic for years. I really recommend to people, there's a podcast. I do a lot of listening to podcasts. I don't read books as much anymore because I have two small children and I run a full-time daycare out of my house. But I can listen to a podcast like while I'm cooking lunch or making dinner or going for a walk. So um, there's a podcast called Body Kindness. And she talks a lot about intuitive eating. And um, there's also a documentary that was really, really transformative for me called Embrace. And... um, I think you can watch that like on Amazon. You can buy it. You can rent it. And um, it's about how women have been trained to hate their bodies. And that's like a red pill wake up too. Like, I don't have to hate my body all day. I still eat sugar. I still eat. I love to order dessert. Like, if I go out to dinner with my girlfriends, they'll all order wine. And I will order dessert at the end. And I'll share it with them. And it's my little treat. And I don't have to eat the whole thing. And you know what? When you stop telling yourself you can't have it, you stop needing to eat 10 pieces of cake. You just eat a little bit of it and then you enjoy it. So um, I highly recommend that. In terms of my, like, female friendships, um, I have lots of female friendships. I have my whole life because they're, like, my chosen family. And my high school girlfriend, we all wanted to go on a trip last year for our 40th birthday. They had suggested NASA which is near where I live. I live in Northern California. And uh, I've been to Napa plenty of times when I was drinking. But the only thing to do in Napa is go wine tasting. And I knew that's what we would do the whole time. And we we're going to go on like a four or five day trip. Old Audrey would have been like, yeah, Napa's great. Let's just do that. I would never, I can't even say like which restaurant I want to go to, right? I said in the group text, hey, hey guys, you know, I'm sober. I don't drink anymore. Napa might be hard for me because there's just not a lot of other stuff to do. You consider somewhere else. And you'll be surprised that when you start telling people what you want, the people who love you want to hear what you want. <laughs> and they said, a couple of them were like, oh, my God, I totally forgot you don't drink. Why would you want to go to Napa? And so <laughs> we hashed it out. <laughs> yeah. And we hashed it out. And someone suggested Sedona, Arizona, which I was sort of like, Arizona? And we went to Sedona, and Sedona is amazing. 
and we had this wonderful time. It's, you know, learning to speak up for what I want. And it's such a little thing. Like, why would I not be able to say that I don't want to go wine tasting? But I think we feel so ashamed and so embarrassed that we, that we don't drink anymore, that we don't stick up for ourselves. And, you know, as you get more and more time under your belt sober, you just, you stop caring. And I lost some friendships. And so now I know that the friendships that are still here, they want me to be healthy. They want what I want for me. Well, thank you for sharing. <laughs> There's a lot there. And I think the part of your story that I really want to suss out a bit more is about sure. when you become healthy, as you said, in a family that is structured on dysfunction, or as you yes. called it, taking the taking the red pill. <laughs> yes. They all um, want to take the blue pill. They want me to take the blue pill. Still. Yeah, because yes, you're rejecting them. I've heard the, the term that you're breaking the family contract is another way yes. to say that. We all agree silently without really any That's input right. on this, that this is, this is how we all agree to act. And there's lots of times where we renegotiate the family contract or we we break the family contract in little ways. And that might be when we start saying, you know what, um, you know, I'm not going to come home for Christmas anymore. From now on, I'm going to have Christmas right. at my house with my kids. That's kind of sometimes that's not that well received because, you know, this sort of unspoken, unacknowledged contract exists of this is how our family operates. And when you shake it up, the people have to, first of all, realize that they had an expectation and then readjust their expectations. And and those little things can be repaired or adjusted, but your change is existential. <laughs> I mean, it's not, there's no adaptation yes. for them. It, it threatens right. their whole existence. So I could see how that's really hard. Now, one thing we often talk about in recovery is how great all of our relationships become, because when we change ourselves, <laughs> we naturally change the relationship. And so lots of times, even though we may not have been at fault, just by changing ourselves, the relationship improves because the dynamic is better or, you know, if it's worth saving. But you're you're in a really interesting position because there there isn't a lot of um, potential <laughs> to heal those relationships. No. So you're in an interesting spot. And when you the, you mentioned uh, the comment about people pleasing, when you stop people pleasing, people will not be pleased. So that's a really profound thing. And I think it sends a lot of people that are trying to make changes. It sends them running back to their old ways because. As you said, there's a reason why we are people pleasers, and that is to feel safe and to control the situation. It's a very quiet form of manipulation. That's right. <laughs> All you people pleasers right. out there who think you're just nice, you're actually uh -huh. nice at manipulating people so that you can feel safe in a situation, and that's profound. But right. you have had to get comfortable with the fact that you can't people please them into you feeling safe? I think a lot of people thought I would start drinking again, to be honest. Mm -hmm. The longer I've been sober and stuck with it, the worse things got. Well, so for example, with my dad, he had come for a visit and he had, um, he's a very damaged person and he was talking in front of my, I think she was three year old daughter, but he was like <laughs> using foul language and he was, 
talking about how awful his own parents were and just, I felt sick after he left. Let's just put it that way. I didn't, I did not care for what was being said. And so I sent him an email because, and I've tried to set boundaries over email, which my therapist says is okay, because I cannot do it in person with my parents. I will just totally shut down emotionally. I sent him an email and it was so kindly worded, like as kind as I could just, Hey dad, these, you know, you said something last time you were here and I normally I wouldn't say anything, but I just didn't feel good afterwards. And I want us to have a real relationship so I'm going to tell you what you said that made me feel bad. And you can tell me if I say something that makes you feel bad. And he never responded to me. And he, he cuts people out of his life. Like, well, he's, he's a very damaged person. So like, I can't make him well. I can't make him want to have a relationship with me. That's his side of the street. And I have been doing his side of the street for so long. In fact, with this new therapist, she said, I want you to try sitting on your hands. Every mm-hmm. time you think you're going to text somebody or call somebody to fix it, sit on your hands for a couple of days. Don't, don't do it for a couple of days. We call it sit on my hands. And guess what? Those people do not reach out to me because the family pattern is that I reach out and I apologize. That is what I do. And now that I've stopped apologizing, and I'll apologize if I hurt somebody and they tell me, But now that I've stopped spinning and spinning and spinning to fix it, those relationships all fell because I was the only one holding it up. And it's been very painful. Yeah. (laughs) It's easy. Like, I'm talking about it because I'm a little detached from it right now. But if you you ask my husband, it has been very, very painful to lose these relationships, especially with my sister. That, That one, I almost can't even go near it. It's so hurtful. But she clearly was very, very, very triggered by my getting sober. You can't people please your way out of it because you're not willing to compromise your sobriety. It really becomes a question of your sobriety, which is equal to your life, your life, literally, your (laughs) existence, but also your family dynamic, your marriage, your motherhood, all the things that you value so much in your life. you, You won't give that up for someone else's comfort. And that strikes me as that you have seen the value in yourself and are now sustaining it and feeding it and growing it and growing a relationship with yourself as you value yourself more and more and more. I'm curious about the role of motherhood. You know, you talked about about looking after little Audrey and giving her the nurturing and attachment that she didn't have. And by that, you met your inner child or your past child and those old memories. As you now have this really close and beautiful relationship with your children, I'm guessing that that really shows you the love that you can also give to yourself and go back and heal. Can you talk about that, about how your role as a mom has helped you heal your role as a daughter? Becoming a mother has been so healing for me. So healing. Um, I think that when I was little, I really needed to be cuddled and loved. And I didn't get that. I was desperate for it. And I was desperate for it in my relationships with men in my teens and 20s. Just that physical contact. And my children, my oldest slept in our bed until she was five. Our little one still gets in bed with us pretty much every night. Sometimes he gets in at three and sometimes he gets in at like 6 a.m. But um, 
And my husband was on board with that. Um, he grew up in an affectionate family, a health, emotionally healthy family. You know, all families have their issues, but his family is emotionally pretty healthy. Uh, you know, I'll be really honest. My husband has parented me. He has shown me that attachment when somebody loves you unconditionally and given me all that cuddling that, you know, I think that's really important that, you know, if you ever read that study, I think it was by someone called Harlow, Harlow's monkey study in the fifties where they had mm-hmm. a wire mother and a cloth mother. You oh, never yeah. heard this one, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the wire mother and the cloth mother. And that, those, that mother quote unquote was made out of wire and it either had like stuffed animal fabric on it and stuffing, or it was like made out of wire. And the baby monkeys, now they could not do this today because it's so cruel and it actually makes me sad just thinking about it. My like empath heart breaks <laughs> for these little monkeys. But the baby monkeys would spend all of their time on the cloth mother. And the baby monkeys who had the cloth mother, they were faced with scary or novel events did better emotionally. And that thing wasn't even hugging them back. But that physical input is really important. And I have been able to do that with my children. You know, a lot of people don't agree with co-sleeping, but that's something else I've been able to do. I call it pivot. Like, I've been able to like change because if you had asked me before I had children, if my children would be sleeping in my bed, I would have said no as a kindergarten teacher. But my intuition when my daughter was really, when she was like three days old, she wasn't feeding well, breastfeeding, and she was crying all the time. And if she was next to me in the bed, she, she settled. And first of all, it was a way to get some sleep. And second of all, it just felt very natural to me. And so that's what we did. We changed. And I do that when something's not working, I don't feel like I don't get into that sunk cost fallacy or like that the world wants it to be one way. Like I'm, they're supposed to be in their crib. And I tell parents this, you know, I run a daycare and I'm always like, if you are putting your kid in the crib because the world's telling you to don't do that. If you're doing it because you want to, and you need that space, then yes, do it. But like my intuition was very strong to hold my children and cuddle them. If I look at what happened to my mother when she was a teen from the outside, that was so traumatizing for her. And her mother, my grandmother, was not affectionate. She was very cold. So that stuff gets passed down. I don't know what happened with me. I just, I have been able to love my children and that has been, that has been so healing for me. I think that I've broken the pattern. Mm -hmm. I think that I, I broke it on my side. And that's amazing. Yeah. And, and it, it has been, it has been really hard. It's not easy. Like you said, people will say, you know, like all your relationships will get better. And I'm here to tell you, they might not, they mm-hmm. might not. And having to let go of that for me, because that people pleasing perfectionist in me, I don't want to be the bad daughter. I want to be the good daughter who does everything right. And If I'm the good daughter, then people have to love me. I think we have to redefine what it means to improve a relationship because it's like we have to improve our idea of what better is because a relationship that doesn't hold the potential to be healed and well, then a better form of that might be distant, (laughs) 
<laughs> and being that's okay right. with that distance. And that's what better looks like. That's what healed looks like is that it's not, you're not allowing the dysfunction to flourish, but you also give that's up right. that pipe dream that someday I'm going to have this yes. relationship. There is always the chance that that person might change on their own and things might improve. But from what we can do, it's not there. It's like, I'm really touched as you talk about your relationship with your husband. And I somehow managed to marry a really healthy, <laughs> I, balanced I, I guy. <laughs> and let me tell and you, I met him. Do you remember that years. your husband's name is the same as my son's? Yes, so neat, and it's an unusual <laughs> name. So it's unusual. unusual. Yeah, yeah, that is that is a funny parallel. One of those little uh, winks from the universe that yes. we're connected. <laughs> but what that's I wonder right. with you, I know for me, I definitely did not know that's what I was looking for, and I did not know that the person I married was was so well adjusted and healthy like I didn't have an understanding of the fact that he had healthy attachment in his families and maybe I didn't did you did you know did your instinct help you pick a partner did you know what you were looking for in a husband or did did fortune fall in your lap what how do you see that as unfolding I, in your life I, I I do think it's a little bit of fortune I will sometimes tell people like you know, I have friends who are struggling in their marriages and I, I, I will say like, I got it really rough in the, in the nuclear family department. I had it pretty rough. I think the universe gave me a break. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I needed a break. <laughs> and I did, um, when I met him, so we met online in early days of online dating and we emailed a little bit and over the emails, I could tell I really liked him. And then when we met on our first date, I did think I could marry this guy. And I actually told one of my girlfriends that after the date, I was like, I think I could marry that guy. He, I don't think that was the same for him. He was coming off a divorce. So he was in a sort of a painful place of his own. We, you know, we just both feel like we're so lucky. We're like best friends. We laugh together all the time. We like to do the same stuff. Parenting has lined up pretty well for us. He's a teacher. He teaches um, elementary autism. You know, he's my best friend. And, you know, also I think he's pretty hot. So it's been, <laughs> we've been really, really lucky. That's really, <laughs> really sweet. lucky. You know, it's a yeah, so. but you, you love being a mom, you run a daycare and your husband uh, works in the education field with younger children with disabilities. Mm -hmm. It really shows to me how vulnerable you were willing to be today in talking about uh, managing breast milk that had alcohol traces in it. I'm guessing you told it to just show how far from your values you were when yes, you were exactly. drinking like that. Yeah. The point of the conversation really is, and if anyone's listening who's in that stage where you're doing that kind of thing, the, I think the point of it is the depth of the denial of active addiction totally. in where you can convince yourself that it's not that bad. Now, if you're past yes. it and you've changed and you're still beating yourself up about it, then, you know, that's where we need to let it go. But if it's something that people are actively doing right now, I just challenge anyone who's listening, who's finding themselves 
betraying their values or questioning what they're doing, whether it's, you know, related to parenthood or some other aspect of life that really matters to you where you kind of know you're compromising yourself. I think that's a that's a chance to to have a ping and to say, huh, yes. I know I'm yeah. doing this and to call yourself out on it and know that it is a game that we play with ourselves. It's a very typical pattern for someone in active addiction to make those compromises. And I really appreciate you talking about it because a lot of us have a hard time talking about the, the things we did that were compromises because they are so shame-ridden for us. And um, I do appreciate you talking about that and, and what it meant to you. So thank you for that. You talked about the little voice. Uh, you said, you know, you, yes. you heard that little voice. And I'm just wondering where that came from and if it was always there with you or if it sort of popped up towards the end as a lifeline. Towards the end of my drinking career or my addiction, that little voice would sometimes just come out. So I'll tell a story. When I was pregnant with my daughter, I got in a big fight with my mom about her husband. (laughs) And she screamed at me. I was in my classroom. I remember because it was open house night. And I was, when you're a teacher and you do open house, you often stay on campus until the night. And I was in my classroom alone. And I was about eight months pregnant. And um, I um, had been in some therapy again. And the therapist had told me, you do not have to listen. (laughs) You do not have to be available for someone to scream at you. So when somebody is talking to you in a way that you don't approve of, or they're screaming at you, you can say, please use a calm voice or I will hang up the phone. And if they continue to scream, hang up. And I was like, I could never do that, right? Like, I didn't, I didn't think I would ever be able to do that. But during this particular conversation, I did that. I said, please stop yelling or I'm going to get off the phone. And she continued to scream and I hung up on her. And then we were no contact for like six months. She was, we were no contact when I had my daughter. I've been no contact with both of my parents repeatedly. So I've been sort of like repeatedly abandoned my whole life. But it felt like it came up from inside me and was like, no, I am not available for this. I am not going to put up with this anymore. And that happened a few times before I got sober. And so I think I, I think it's always been there. I think it's your intuition, your gut. My gut is very strong. I think it's always been there, but I was pushing it down. Like, I don't want to listen to you because it's so hard to say no to people when you've been trained to say yes. So you're pushing it down and part of the drinking or the drugging or the sex addiction or the shopping or whatever you're doing to push that voice down. And then when you take the red pill and you get sober, that voice is always talking like you haven't been listening to me. And so that's where I think people hit the emotional sobriety work. And I think people really falter there sometimes because it's so hard to start saying no when you've been saying yes your whole life. Mm-hmm. And, but it is like a muscle. The mm-hmm. more I do it, the easier it gets. And 
it's this thing where you think you're like, it's this almost this like self grandeur where like, if I say no, the whole thing is going to fall apart. 90% of the time, if I say no, especially to the people who love me. So if you say no to somebody who loves you and respects you, they're like, oh, okay, sure. We'll see you next time. It's like not that big a deal. <laughs> it's the really dysfunctional people that can't. Yeah. They can't hear that it. it. And it's hard. It you triggers have to... them and they can't regulate. And, and you can't yes. make them regulate. Yeah. No. And I well, think oftentimes they can't set boundaries. And so they're triggered by you setting boundaries. So yeah. They, can, yeah. they don't know how to say no. And they, don't, they feel very triggered by you saying no because, well, if I'm not allowed to say no to people, you're not. Well, for that's some disorders, it equals rejection, right? I mean, that's, yes. anyone saying no to them is, is very threatening because it feels like rejection, even though that's right. a, a boundary is not a rejection. It's something different. But, and so it's received overblown because they, they feel like you're, you're breaking their heart. And that starts right. a whole cycle that is entirely theirs. Well, this has been so interesting. And I appreciate your honesty and your openness today and your willingness to talk about things that are difficult and raw and still painful. And yet I celebrate of with course. you the, the life that you've built and the, <laughs> the healing that you've achieved. And that is, you know, your life's work now. Your recovery is, is just healing and growing evermore. And I yes. honor that in you. I'm so happy. I'm so happy for you, Audrey, that you have oh, been able you. to break the mold, as you say, and, and make this change. I know it isn't easy, and I'm, I'm glad you told us about it today. No, and it's all just a practice, you know. Even the body shaming stuff, it's a practice. Something comes up in my head, and I'm like, you know what? I don't not have to listen to that. That is an old voice, and it used to help me, but it doesn't help me anymore. And just becoming more aware of your own thought patterns. I wanted to say to you, you are shining a light into the world and you have no idea the amount of people who are hearing it and seeing it. And people will private message me on Facebook sometimes and ask me, how did, how did you get sober? I'm thinking about it. And I always recommend the bubble hour first because it was the way in for me. And you changed, you changed my life. You changed my husband's life. You changed my children's lives. So thank you for what you do. Ah, uh, thanks, You're Audrey. So relatable to listen to. <laughs> well, I don't and do I it just, alone. You know, there's so far yeah. 300 plus <laughs> other guests that have made this magic happen. But That's right. I will accept your gratitude and return return my gratitude to you as well. And, um, we'll just shine really, our lights on each other. <laughs> exactly, and I'm just I'm happy to be part of what's happening. You know, I'm just, I'm happy to be part of all of it. Yeah. And I love hearing how you were able to take this and other tools and put them to use in your life. So thank you so much for sharing your story. And I want our listeners to know that if they want to reach you, um, they can write to mm -hmm. thebubblehour at gmail.com and then I'll forward it on to Audrey and she'll get your message that way. And okay. yeah, any, any final words of encouragement before we go for anyone that's struggling today and thinking about making a change? This is something I always say to people. I wish you could live a week in a two or three year sober person's body <laughs> because it's so different. 
it's so much more peaceful. All my anxiety is down. It's just amazing. I didn't, and I didn't know that's what was going to happen. I thought it was going to be, I thought I was going to be a dud. But it yeah, it's not at all boring. <laughs> no, it's like, it was like the world turned into Technicolor. It's so much better. So I, you know, I wish people could feel how it feels once you're finally over the hump. Like, don't feel sorry for me because I chose this. I feel good about it. I do not feel deprived. <laughs> now, all of these um, books and podcasts and even the stages of change, all of these things that you mentioned, I will put links to them in the show notes. So listeners, yes. as you're listening to this, if you, if you, depending on what you're listening in, you could, you'll be able to see that there, there will be links either in your podcast app or you can go to the website and see it there. But there are links there to everything we've talked about today. I'll make sure they're there. Thank you so much for your time today, Audrey. I appreciate it so much. And listeners, we appreciate you as well. And that's all for this week, everyone. So until next time, please take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays and wait there Rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see the old I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Just want to be free.